You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For October 18th, 2017, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nilder. On this show, I've framed energy transition as, first and foremost, a response to climate change. Sure, there are plenty of other reasons to want and to work for energy transition, apart from carbon emissions, like reducing the massive environmental damage that fossil fuels and nuclear fuel do, the security that renewables offer by not needing fuel at all, reduce cost for energy and human health. There are lots of good reasons. But if we step back, way back, it becomes clear that climate change is just one aspect of a much bigger set of problems that humanity faces. Because we're not just overwhelming the planet's capacity to naturally sequester carbon dioxide. We're overwhelming the planet's regenerative capacity for nearly everything we consume. Even if we didn't have an urgent climate problem right now, we'd still have a series of semi-urgent or soon-to-be-urgent other problems, including things like food supply, clean water supply, managing the vast amounts of waste we create, and so on. And the deeper you go into that way of looking at things, the more you realize how interconnected everything is. How, for example, beef consumption creates demand for feed corn, which competes with ethanol fuel for land, and which is grown with substantial inputs of oil and gas. Change just one part of our massively interrelated world, and you nudge the whole system. It's hard to conceptualize all these relationships and hard to even quantify what the planet's capacity is to meet human demands, or how much of that capacity is renewable, and how much of it is just simply being permanently depleted. How do we know at what level our consumption is sustainable, and when we're in planetary overshoot? To help us understand this hugely complex picture, our guest in this episode created a scientific methodology called Ecological Footprint Analysis. Dr. William Rees, an ecological economist and former director of the University of British Columbia's School of Community and Regional Planning, has published extensively on the biophysical prerequisites for sustainability in an era of accelerating ecological change. Along with his graduate students, Dr. Rees has worked tirelessly for decades to develop ecological footprint analysis and to develop indicators to inform policymakers about the state of the world. For example, you may have heard of Earth Overshoot Day, which the Global Footprint Network calculates every year. It arrives earlier every year, and this year it arrived on August 2nd. As they described it this year, this means that in seven months, we emitted more carbon than the oceans and the forests can absorb in a year. We caught more fish, felled more trees, harvested more, and consumed more water than the Earth was able to produce in the same period. It's a fascinating way of looking at the world, and I promise you that after listening to this discussion, you will never quite think of energy transition the same way again. Then, in the news segment, we'll update the story on the VC Summer and Vogel nuclear plants, discuss first impressions of Secretary Perry's grid resiliency pricing rule, check out a new world record for tidal power, and note a fascinating story about a New Jersey prepper who lost everything. But first, our conversation with Bill Reese. 
So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Bill, to the Energy Transition Show. Hi, Chris. Glad to be here. So I want to suggest that we just start with the basics of your theory here and then move on to your view of the world and what we should be doing now. So for starters, you originated the idea of an ecological footprint, which essentially measures the human use of resources as contrasted with the planet's ability to regenerate and renew resources. And with the help of some of your graduate students, including Dr. Matis Vakernagel, the head of Global Footprint Network, have helped to make it a globally known and unsustainability indicator, if you will. And I suppose right off the bat here, I should mention that I worked for Matis at the Global Footprint Network from 2013 to 2015, so I'm well acquainted with the theory and how the indicator works. But this is your baby, so why don't you describe the basics of the eco-footprint analysis, or EFA for our listeners, and how that works, and sort of what is the footprint, how is the footprint indicator constructed, and what's a global hectare, and all that stuff. Well, it's a long story, but I'll try to make it as short as I can. Yeah. It came about as the result of a challenge from an economist who insisted that the human enterprise, people, were disconnecting from nature, that therefore growth was in no way constrained, the economy could expand forever, and so on and so forth. I was intrigued by this idea and started to look for ways of, frankly, disproving that. Now, the first question of human ecology is, or really it should be, just how much of the Earth's surface is dedicated to supporting just me in the style to which I am accustomed? So if you think of all the things that each of us consumes in the course of a year, food, fiber of all kinds, also all the wastes that we dump into the atmosphere and in the waters and soil and so on and so forth, clearly almost everything that we use and everything we dump out requires land or ecosystem services or some kind of some kind to accommodate and to assimilate. So basically the ecological footprint is a measure of all the ecosystem area, the area of productive ecosystems needed to produce all the biologically based resources that a human being requires, as well as to assimilate the wastes. Now, the one we measure in particular is carbon dioxide, and there's good reasons for that, which we can get into if you want to. But the bottom line is that each of us is tied to the planet as a result of being a biological entity that needs food and fiber to survive. We need something to assimilate our wastes. And if we could develop a method to trace all of our consumption back to the land, we could have a way of estimating the area of the Earth's surface needed to supporting each and every one of us. And in the case of a North American, it's about six what we call global average hectares. A hectare is about 2.47 acres, so we're talking about roughly 15 acres of land needed to produce our food and fiber and to assimilate our carbon wastes. That's on a per capita basis. And when you think about this and put it in global context, there's only about 1.8, 1.7 hectares of productive land on Earth. So as North Americans, we're using perhaps four or five times our fair share. Okay, great. So I just want to emphasize this concept of a global hectare basically is a way of accounting for all resource consumption well, and then representing it in this footprint of land. It's a way of facilitating comparisons across nations. So for example, different land types are more or less productive. If you use fertilizer, then your land is much more productive than someone who doesn't use fertilizer. So direct comparisons of the footprint that you might require in a very poor country and that in North America is distorted by those technological inputs. So what we do with the global average hectare is to 
convert all of the footprint calculations for individual nations or individual people into what they would be if we were all using hectares of global average productivity. So that means that if I say the U.S. footprint is seven hectares and that of an African is one hectare, we're talking about the same thing as if we were using the same technologies. Right. Okay. And the global hectare also actually includes the productivity of the oceans, right? It does. Yeah. The parts of the oceans that aren't biological deserts. You know, people are deceived a bit because the earth is three quarters water, but about 80% or more of the oceans are the equivalent of a desert. So only about 10, 15% of the oceans have high enough productivity to support the kind of consumption that humans require. Okay. And so that productivity that humans consume from the oceans, that's also represented in the global hectare. It is indeed, okay. yes. It's part of the fishing footprint, so to speak. Right. Okay. So my impression of the footprint indicator, having come to understand it somewhat intimately, is that it does a very nice job of compacting a lot of messy details about the world, all the different kinds of things we consume and where they come from, and really crunching fairly vast amounts of data from all sorts of sources into this calculation of a global hectare. But that the largest component of it, at just over half is the CO2 part of our total footprint. And that's essentially based on the rate and the ability of forests to naturally sequester the carbon that we put into the air that goes into the air from all sources. But my view of energy transition isn't really about carbon sequestration by forests. Indeed, if you want to sequester it for a long run, as some of our previous climate scientist guests on this show have explained, you really have to get it stuck into soils and rocks for the long term. My view of energy transition is mainly about replacing fossil fuels and stopping emissions that way. So let me ask you this. If we were able to nearly cease fossil fuel production and let's say reduce our carbon emissions to what the earth can in fact naturally sequester in the carbon cycle, would that bring humanity back into the zone of sustainability or at least not what we call overshoot? Or I don't know what we call it, just shoot maybe? <laughs> Well, Chris, I'm sure you're aware there's about 20 questions in what you're saying here. So let's start with the simple part. Keep in mind that the footprint started out merely as a way of demonstrating that humanity is in fact not decoupling. In fact, what we show with footprint analysis is that as incomes increase, as technologies improve, we're making greater and greater demands, both on a per capita and in global total, therefore, impacts and demands on the ecosphere. Decoupling is not happening in any significant sense. As far as carbon is concerned, people seem disturbed by the fact that, and by the way, it's only true for rich countries that carbon sequestration accounts for half the footprint. The simple reality is that plants, photosynthesis by forests and grasslands and so on, is the only currently effective means that we have of manipulating carbon uptake. About half of the carbon we emit goes into the seas. The rest has to be accommodated by land ecosystems. And by the way, you mentioned that the way to really take it up is to get it into soils. But of course, photosynthesis, plants and so on, appropriate carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, convert it to biomass, it then goes into the soil. And there's vastly more carbon in the soil than there is in the atmosphere. If the key is getting it into the soil, then you still need to measure the available so-called carbon sink. There's another reason for focusing on carbon here. Uh, first of all, what we show is that there is an insufficient carbon sink on planet Earth to accommodate our current use of fossil fuel. That's why carbon is accumulating in the atmosphere and driving climate change. So waste cycle, the whole cycle of materials through the economy, 
requires that we record not only the consumption, but also the waste output. Carbon is the single largest waste by weight in all industrial economies. We don't usually think of it that way because it's an odorless, transparent gas, but the reality is carbon is the largest weight of all the wastes in industrial economies. And it is accumulating in the atmosphere precisely because there is an insufficient carbon sink on the planet. Not enough forests, not enough grasslands to assimilate it. And that's one of the things that we measure quite accurately with the eco-footprint. So in many respects, the ecological footprint technology is a predictor of climate change because it shows that carbon is accumulating at a vast rate in the atmosphere. And if it is a major, as it is, factor in climate forcing, and then we're well on that track. Now you say that we've got to shift into other forms of energy, electricity, photovoltaics or wind power and so on. And if we do that, then obviously our use of fossil fuels will decline and our footprint will shrink. And so the footprint will measure the extent to which the introduction of alternative energy is affecting our use of the atmosphere and the soils and so on as a carbon sink. And so it's a perfectly good measure of the progress technology may or may not make in reducing the carbon accumulation in the atmosphere. Okay, but if we ceased carbon emissions from burning fossil fuels, would that bring us back into shoot? No, no. There's another issue here. And again, I want to take you back to the original purpose of footprint analysis was simply to show that humans remain and in fact are becoming even more intensely dependent on the natural environment for their survival. If you think of something like agricultural land in any given country, we can show, just using the basic methodology of eco-footprint analysis, that almost all countries on Earth are using more agricultural land than is available within their own countries, and therefore are dependent on global trade, on agricultural products imported from those few countries that have a true surplus. But once the footprint shows you're using all your agricultural land, that's it. That's as far as the method can go. That's not the case with carbon emissions. We can show that a country is using more carbon sink than is available within its boundaries. But we can also show the rate at which that carbon is accumulating in the atmosphere, which is why it becomes a major component of the footprint. If we go back to agricultural land, we can show that we're using all the available agricultural land in the country, but we can't go beyond that on the global scale. So what the footprint does not do, and was never intended to do, is indicate the extent to which we are overshooting our use, say, of agricultural land. With carbon, we can estimate that because it accumulates in the atmosphere. With agricultural land or forest lands or fisheries, what we are doing is drawing down. We're degrading, eroding the soil. And in that way, we cannot measure it with the footprint. The footprint is an aerial measure. It measures the area of land or water in use. And we cannot measure the extent to which that land or water is being overused. That's a major, I suppose you could call it a methodological flaw in the method. I don't think it is a flaw. It simply recognizes that no single index can measure everything. So even if we were to eliminate the use of carbon, and in some countries that would bring us down to the point where the footprint it looks like we're sustainable, all it says is that we're using all the land that is available. And the fact is, we're eroding our lands at anywhere between 10 and 40 times the rate of renewal, and so we're still not sustainable. There has been a recent study that shows about a third of the world's agricultural land is in severe 
erosion or a state of abuse right now. We've already lost a fifth. And at current rates of land degradation, we may be out of soil within 25 to 50 years, let's say 50 years. Well, economists say no matter. We can always use fertilizers and pesticides to maintain productivity. But of course, that has all sorts of problems of its own. The fact of the matter is that we are in a state of gross overshoot. We can measure it rather well in terms of carbon output, but we can't measure it nearly as well with some other factors. I'll give you just one other example. This is an elaborate answer. Let's suppose we know that the land in country A is being eroded at 10 times the rate at which soils are being produced. If you wanted to use that land sustainably, it means you'd need 10 times as much agricultural land so that you could use one hectare and keep another nine in fallow as it reconstitutes itself. So you'd cycle through that 10 hectares, one hectare at a time, and that would enable the land to maintain itself even as you are using it. As it stands, we don't do that. We use every hectare continuously and therefore we are eroding it at 10 times the rate at which it's being used. But what this would mean is, say a typical North American requires a hectare of land or a half hectare of land to maintain our current diets. If we were to implement a what I call a sustainability factor and take into account the rate of estimated erosion in North America, that half hectare per capita would increase to about five or six hectares per capita. And if you did that through the whole eco-footprint method, you'd find that instead of a footprint of say six hectares, it might be closer to 40 or 50 hectares. We can imagine reducing our consumption from six hectares to perhaps two, but when you tell people, look, you need 40 and you've got to come down to two, that becomes almost an overwhelming target and people just throw up their hands in despair. So yeah, the footprint doesn't measure everything. It does say we're in overshoot. It doesn't tell us how much we're in overshoot, But in many respects, the policy directions that we should be pursuing as a result of the underestimate that we get out of footprint analysis would be exactly the same as the policy directions we would show if it were a much more generous estimator of the degree of overshoot. And so we don't really achieve much by scaring the pants off people by showing them that the problem is actually 10 times worse than we can measure. Yeah, well, okay, fair enough. So even if we were able to downsize our emissions to the point that the planet can naturally sequester them and keep them within the bounds of the proper carbon cycle. We're an overshoot on all sorts of resources. It's not just a carbon problem. Okay. So let's get into the policy domain a little bit then, since that's what we're trying to influence here. So in your outlook on humanity's future, what do you think our energy consumption will look like in the future? I mean, do you imagine that we're going to have some level of sophisticated, modern, renewably powered society in the long run? Or do you think we're simply going back to a pre-industrial mode of living? Or are you agnostic about what kind of future we should be reaching for in terms of our energy sources and uses? Well, again, very complicated question. I know. The simple reality <laughs> is that almost all predictions about energy futures have been wrong. So I'm agnostic. I don't like to make predictions because, as I say, it's an extremely fluid area. I will say a couple of things I think that are important. We have to recognize the role of energy in modern society. There's been a five-fold increase in the human population in the last 115 years or so. That's almost entirely the result of abundant cheap fossil fuel. 
this is a period of absolutely unprecedented growth, not only in the numbers of human beings, but in the scale of the economy and in the huge quantity of resources required to sustain all of those people at the level of material well-being that we have come to expect. This is not sustainable. It cannot continue. The planet cannot continue to take the kind of punishment that is implicit in that kind of explosive growth on a finite planet. Now, we're in a bit of a tight spot here because to maintain and to grow, as most people expect we are going to do, we need to have at least the equivalent of the current amount of energy. Even if we got more efficient, we'd need half or so of the present amount of energy. And the simple reality is that right now, as we speak, and again, I'm not making any predictions, I'm just saying that right now, as we speak, there are no alternative energies on the horizon that have the capacity to replace the quantity, the sheer quantity of energy made available on a dependable basis that we acquire from fossil fuels. So solar photovoltaics will not do it, wind power will not do it. And so if we have to abandon fossil fuels as a result of climate change or diminishing supplies, and I have to remind us all that many of the world's largest oil fields, and even now some of the fracked oil shows signs of peaking and going into decline. If That's we right. have to go to fossil fuels or there's an energy shortage, I do not think that the now available sources of green alternative energy is adequate to replace fossil fuel. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, plus access to the entire back catalog of our complete shows, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and join. Annual subscriptions are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions and per-episode purchases are also available. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. And let me offer a special welcome to the students and educators out there who have joined our new subscribers. A half dozen university classes are now using the show as coursework, with more joining all the time, so welcome. And if you're a student or an educator who would like to inquire about our unbeatable educational discount, just shoot me an email at chris at energytransitionshow.com and we'll work something out for you. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. The failing U.S. nuclear industry continues to make news. The first story concerns the saga over the abandoned VC Summer nuclear plant owned by Scana and its subsidiaries in South Carolina. 
The U.S. Attorney's Office has served a subpoena seeking a wide range of documents relating to the project and seems to be looking for evidence of fraud and misconduct. That investigation comes on the heels of an internal audit released by the South Carolina Governor's Office, which raised questions about when utility leaders knew of problems at the troubled plan. Item 2. The second nuclear story concerns the Vogel plant, still under construction in Georgia, which is essentially... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.